we always look at our restaurants as creating obviously memorable experiences that go beyond the people's expectations. And I think that's where the whole package really is more important than ever, where you can have great food, but if you don't have really good hospitality, making people feel welcome and comfortable and safe um, has a big impact now. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The nature of hospitality venues has changed so much over the years. Some start as small businesses, then roll the dice on a second venue. Before long, some create unique restaurant groups with many offerings and many staff. But what does it take to manage the food operations across multiple venues and maintain the very highest of standards? Daniel Giraldo is the group head chef of the Delia Group in Melbourne. Daniel, how are you? Good, and you, Anthony? I'm good. It's good to have you on the show. You became a head chef of a pretty important uh, restaurant in Melbourne at just the age of 23. Well, what were you like as a chef at that time? Yeah, to be honest, it was. Um, I was very young, and to be honest, I don't think I was 100% ready, but uh, Shane gave, gave me a big opportunity, and I wasn't going to say no, but it was very challenging. Um, I've definitely changed over the years of where, where I was back then, you know, when you're a bit young and bit hot-headed and, and, and times have changed in the industry as well um but no like it was a great challenge like don't get me wrong it was it was very hard the industry was very different and I was also really hard on myself back then being 23 your ego is really big um so it was definitely a challenge but um it's I'm really glad I took it and I'm still there eight years later well, the Delia Group has changed quite a lot in the last uh, year and a half, as many businesses have, but there's been an incredible change in, in that group. Well, give, us, give us a sense of what, it, what it's like at the moment. Well, yes, like obviously the pandemic, as it hits the whole industry, has been very challenging, but um, we pivoted really quickly. So we, we were actually one of the first restaurants to close, to make the decision to close before the government forced us to close because we could see what was happening. As soon as we saw the booking start to plummet and see what was happening around the world, we, we closed. And then initially we thought, all right, this looks like it's going to be a few weeks and no one really expected what it turned into. But once we saw that, all right, it was getting really bad. Um, with Shane, we sat down and we're like, all right, we'll, like, we need to think of something to pivot. And that's where Maha Go was born, which was a takeaway from Maha alone. Um, we condensed all the venues. Um, oh, we didn't let go any of our staff, and then we just created a takeaway platform. Um, we had a, Shop- a Shopify account. We created everything in about 72 hours, which is pretty mental. Um, but it was really great. And we initially, we thought, all right, we'll use a couple of staff, Shane, me, and we'll see how it goes. And it just went crazy off the bat. And then from there, Shane obviously saw massive potential into something bigger, and he started to work on what now is Providor. How did that affect your role? You're you looking after multiple venues as well. How much has your job changed? Um, during that time, it did change dramatically. Where obviously we're used to three venues and hustle and bustle and the services. So all of a sudden, we're doing hundreds and hundreds of orders for takeaway. Um, over the period of time, it did change. Obviously, we, the, changing the mentality and to create systems and operations to be able to do that takeaway from our kitchens was probably a little bit tricky at the beginning because um, obviously we're used to doing high volume. Maha is obviously a big restaurant, but then the logistics behind the preparation of food, then boxes, and logistically 
to do that volume of orders was really different. So it was really, it really changed my mentality. You know, even the menu structure, you have to think of what will work, not just for as a chef, what you want to serve, but what works for the guests, what works for the brand um, and making sure that it's also user friendly and fun for the people at home and not, not complicated. I think the pandemic showed us that people obviously have a massive hunger for great food, no matter where it's at home or in the venues. Um, but we saw that big window there for, for a really big, a really good business that can just change. And I think it really did change the dining in Melbourne. I think Provador has been a great impact on the industry and not just to support the industry, but for, for people at home to be able to eat great quality food. I want to explore the changes that you're implementing moving forward as Melbourne's opening up. But uh, you were you were born in Colombia. Take us back to when you were young and the role that food played for you. Yeah, so to be honest, I'm a bit of a like a, a little bit of a traveler, gypsy type for my family. We moved around quite a bit. I was born in Colombia, and then when I was about three years old, I moved to the United States. Um, there, I lived for multiple years. And then from there, we moved back to Colombia when I was about 11. And then we moved back to the Caribbean. And somehow I've ended up in Australia after all those years. But um, food always, what made, something that connected, I think, me and, and Maha and Shane was, so in South America, for us, food, obviously it's essential, but it's the only time that we, we always spend it in family. Like I grew up, my, my mother's a great cook with very traditional Colombian food. And my father became a chef in the United States in about 96 so I was very lucky to have that balance of I could have a really high quality meal, but I could also have very traditional food from South America that my mother would cook. Um, and every lunch and dinner, we always sat down as a family. And I think that's something that's always been engraved in me. Like even with, with at home with my missus, we always have dinner together um, or when it's family and cousins. It's, it's just the best times for you to always celebrate and catch up um, and enjoy the best moments in life. Is there any um, feast that you can tell us about from when you were young? Yeah, to be honest, my mom makes is really, there's two things that my mom makes, even nowadays, because I only see them like every five, six years. Um, she makes like this, this roast chicken where you have like sweated down tomatoes and onions, kind of like, like an adobo. And then Maryland sit on top and she puts it in the oven. So half of the chicken is braised and half of the chicken is roasted. And it's it's absolutely delicious. It's one of those things like, no matter, I, I, I've been cooking now for know, about 15 years and I can't do it. And it's obviously something emotional, but um, it's just, it always brings me back memories. And every time I see her, wherever I see her in the world, that's the first meal she cooks me with rice. <laughs> wow. Tell us about that first moment when you started working in a commercial kitchen what sort of impact did it have on you um like i was lucky like i've i grew up seeing my father in restaurants so when we lived in the united states every summer i'd go and spend time at the restaurants he was working he used to work in tampa florida at like a high-end southeast asian restaurant so i'd go spend time with him in the summers and pretty much i'd sit in the kitchen around and play with some of the chefs or peel some carrots or like, I remember we used to play throwing broccoli into little buckets when he wasn't looking. <laughs> um, and that kind of, that was just, it was in like natural for me to see it. And then I didn't really work in a commercial kitchen until I was living in the Dominican Republic. So I moved there in 2005 and I started working with him at 15 years old. And it was, for me, it was a great thing to just spend time with my father. Um, when I was young in the U.S., my dad would work what normal hospitality hours were. So leave the house at 8 in the morning, come back 2 in the morning. Um, he worked at a really busy restaurant. So I didn't really get to spend much time with him growing up. Like, he was a great dad and all, but he was always at work. 
So for me to be living in the Dominican Republic in front of the Caribbean Ocean and working with my father, that in itself was a blessing. Um, that meant a lot to me. So it was really, really fun. And I was really lucky. Obviously, my dad was the executive chef, so I didn't have to clean much or, or do some of the bad jobs when I started. Um, but yeah, like it, was, it, it meant so much to me. And for us, to be, me growing up traveling, it was, um, it was pretty much the, the what I could see the future wise for me because I could work and travel anywhere in the world, which is what I wanted to keep doing. With your father uh, being a chef and also uh, your boss, what, what sort of impact and influence did he have on you? Um, to be honest, it was positive and negative. From a positive point of view, obviously, he taught me things that I would have never learned as an apprentice. You know, from day one, I was prepping meat and fish and doing things that normally you wouldn't do for a couple of years. But then on the on the negative side, um, obviously he would never treat me like an employee. So it was it was it was like he felt good in the moment. But I look back, he he wasn't really hard on me. Or if I made mistakes, you wouldn't get like obviously there wasn't consequences on that. So I think that on that side, I do think I would have preferred a bit more repercussions. But then obviously once I left some, the Caribbean and moved to Australia, um, then that definitely came out, came, came out with other bosses that it wasn't that easy. <laughs> Let's explore that. How did, what drew you to Australia? Uh, to be completely honest, it, I, I met someone in the Dominican Republic. I had I'd never thought about Australia. I was going to go back to the U.S. or to France because I actually moved to France for a couple of months and I was going to go live there, but it fell through. And I came back to the Dominican in 2009 after several months in the south of France and Italy. And then I, I ended up meeting someone and it's like, oh, like we should go to Australia. Um, she was from, from Melbourne and I was like, okay. <laughs> and I just got, I bought a ticket and came to Australia. <laughs> um, that's the honest answer. How different was the uh, restaurant scene here uh, compared to what you were used to? Oh, it was a completely different world. I, I grew up in the U.S., so the, the the scene in the U.S. obviously services amazing. Cities are bustling and really, really busy restaurants I was used to. And the Caribbean was very different, obviously very slow paced, fun, um, relaxed. No one's in a rush there. And then coming to I, – I honestly didn't know anything about Melbourne. I hadn't even Googled it. I only knew about Sydney. <laughs> I only knew about the Harbour Bridge. Um, for me, Melbourne was a little town in Florida, which was near to where I lived. So when I got here, I really came with a, with no expectations. Um, I had no idea of any chefs. I remember arriving here, and all I did was I jumped on Seek, and I just literally pressed send to heaps of restaurants I didn't even know of. So it was definitely very, very different. But um, I loved Melbourne as soon as I arrived. I think the culture, the food scene, having from cafes to high-end restaurants to no, um, more casual um, was really, really great to see. You, you spent a lot of time in the Dominican Republic, as you mentioned. Tell us about what it what it's like there and, and the food from, from the Dominican Republic. So the life there is, is it's completely different to anywhere I've ever lived. I've been very lucky to travel around the world, but – the Dominican Republic has this beautiful slow pace where people, they just want to enjoy life. Like you don't have that rat race. Um, I lived in a little tourist town called Cabarete on the North shore of the Dominican where people that go there, they just want to go surfing. Uh, windsurfing is the capital for kite surfing in the Atlantic ocean. So you have lots of athletes coming and they just want to come explore the culture and just relax. So you don't have that, that really busy office lifestyle of, 
people wanting to just achieve financial goals. So that was really eye-opening for me, where it was just, you'd get up, I'd go surfing in the mornings, I'd go study in the afternoon, and then I'd go work at night. So it was really, it was really great years of my life. I spent more time with my mom, my dad, and my sister, which was really good. Um, and it really changed, I think, my mindset for life of what, what I want to do. It's, it's ironic because like I'm very driven and I work like crazy here in Melbourne, but I think it really taught me to what's valuable in life. I really enjoyed it. There was a, quite a few years before you joined the Delia Group. Um, what, what were some of the main influences and restaurants you worked in in Melbourne as you sort of built your career? So Melbourne, when I first arrived, I just worked at like little a little cafe in Cheltenham because I didn't know anything about Melbourne. And then I worked with um with a hotel, um, just a five star hotel for about a year and a half, where I achieved up to sous chef. And then I wanted to, I didn't because I really didn't know the scene. I didn't know where. And then once about a year and a half, I could tell what restaurants I liked. And I really, really always enjoyed the point at Albert Park. I remember it was the first high end restaurant I ate in Melbourne when I came in two thousand nine. And I just loved everything about it, the, the food, the, um, like the, obviously the meat they had, the venue. Um, it really inspired me. And I was like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to apply for a job there. And I applied for a sous chef job when um, Justin Wise was the executive chef and Andy was the head chef. Um, and I got it. And to be honest, I was really surprised. Like it was a, it was a very high-end venue. It was extremely busy. And I, was just, I just went for it. And I... I had my interview and I got the opportunity and then I stayed there for about a year, which was, I'm not going to lie, it's probably one of the hardest, it probably is the hardest kitchen I ever worked in. Um, the team of chefs that were there were extremely driven. Um, everyone had obviously a very strong passion, but also a bit of egos. <laughs> and we just had to work extremely hard. But um, it was great. Rabbi is a great operator. He taught me massive amounts of hospitality. And the chefs that we had were, like I said, everyone was extremely driven. So we just pushed each other really hard. Um, and it was one of the one of the probably most eye-opening experiences that I had in the industry while I was quite young. And then from there, I had the opportunity to come work at Maha. One of my friends was um, had been a chef there, and the head chef was looking for a new sous chef. And he called me. He's like, "Are you interested?" I'm like, "I'm like, look, to be honest, I'm happy at the point, but I'll always listen to an opportunity." And then that's how I ended up at Maha. I went and spent a day. I'd met Shane only once before, and I just fell in love with, with the culture and the style of restaurant that Maha is. Um, it really showed me a difference of what we, the traditional of high-end restaurants and plated food was, and match it with the beautiful hospitality of shared food and. And having that both balance, I was really, really surprised of it. And I hadn't experienced it in any other restaurant before. And what was it like for you um, moving from those, uh, the restaurants that you'd had in your past to, to one that was, uh, had an, a foundation of Mediterranean, Middle Eastern spices and flavors? Was it, was it different for you? It was really different in the sense of my professional cooking. But some of it did, I could, uh, the flavors and the style of cooking, I could identify with surprisingly some food of South America. Um, normally people wouldn't assume Middle Eastern and South American food are similar, but I think the, the, the culture behind it and the style of it is quite similar. Like there's obviously lots of shared food and family and hospitality is probably the foundation of it. Um, but even some of the cooking methods and spices, there's some things that were similar and that's what really caught my eye uh, that I didn't. I never looked at my food, especially when I was young. My heritage food that could be high end. You know, when you're a young chef, 
you always aspire of Europe and obviously the U.S. And you don't really look at what you have at home and how lucky we are. And I think Maha really opened my eyes to looking at cuisines that aren't the famous British or French, Italian, um, and seeing more to them what meets the eye in, in food. Shane Delia is well-known across Australia. What sort of relationship do you have with him in regards to building the menu and creating the experiences across the group? Um, well, first of all, Shane's like, he's like family to me. Um, Shane's been more than just a mentor, um, a brother. I'm very proud to be able to call him a family member of mine now. Um, we've built what we've done over the few years. It's been really amazing. The relationship that we've created, it's, we work together and with the menu building, we can just sit down and we always start with a plan of what we want to change or if it's a new concept. And then we just start bringing things to the table and it's kind of like a, obviously a joint venture, but it's a conversation instead of like a back and forth. Um, and now like, I know him obviously enough of what the restaurants require and what my touch is into it. And we can just sit down and we always come up with the best ideas is what we come up together. Um, and we do that every, every Wednesday we have a meeting to develop ideas and dishes for all the venues or if we're opening something new and we just sit down and have an initial uh, thought of a, a product or a certain um, fish or meat that we want to use. And then we just start kind of back and forth and we come up with all these ideas and then I go back and develop them with the team. Tell us about how you uh, run brigades across the multiple venues. What do you do to get the best out of your team? Um, I think that's like, that's a great question. And it's changed a lot over the years. I think as we all seen the hospitality industry has changed massively. What for me, when I was growing up in kitchens was, the right way of teaching is not anymore. And even myself, I can, anyone that knows me and that's ever worked at Maha can completely vouch that I used to be quite really harsh. Maha was a very difficult kitchen. It's busy. It was hot and very, I was very like perfectionist and really harsh with, with, the, with the young chefs. Well, now that's changed. I think my, uh, my biggest part now is well, developing culture and, and, and training staff. And we have three venues that are, they're very similar in DNA, obviously, in the food, but they're very different in the structure of the kitchen inside. So the biggest thing is uh, we like to train most of the staff at Maha and then find, the, obviously, the strengths to then put them in the other small venues. Um, the smaller venues, you need to be a little bit more uh, like multifaceted chefs that can do a bit of pastry, a bit of fish, a bit of, pay of sauce, a bit of everything, as in the small kitchens, where Maha, obviously, you have your big sections all segregated. You have your larder, you have your sauce, your fish, your pastry, and we have all our set menus. So for me, training, Maha's the, the, the training ground for all of it. Um, obviously, we all know the industry at the moment with staffing is the most difficult, but um, I'm really proud of my team. Over the pandemic, I kept all my core team, and we, we're like really looking to strive when we come back. Obviously, we need more chefs, but I'm, I'm really happy of the core that we've kept. They've been there at least most of them two, three, four years, five years, um, and we're going to build on that. That change that you experienced personally from being a, quite a hot-headed uh, young chef to um, mentoring and um, connecting with your team, was there a moment that triggered that change? Um, yes, to be honest. Um, I think there's, there's a point in life where I realised all right, this is, it wasn't sustainable for myself. Like I used to get, like, I love what I do and I'll always have all the care in what I'm putting up, but it was getting to a point where it's becoming detrimental to, to the team and to myself, like getting that angry and upset wasn't healthy. 
Um, and two, you could see, like, I would, I would go through teams quite quickly. Um, but, like, it's weird because with time, I used, to, I used to keep lots of my shit, but then obviously you did have a turnover. But, like I said, the biggest thing for me was I, I could tell that mentally and health-wise, it's, it wasn't the right way to keep going. Um, and when you have, like, staff that aren't, you see that they're not happy or they're scared. Um, that was the biggest thing for me to change. And my, my partner made me change a lot as well. Um, my partner is the complete opposite to me. Um, her name's Emily. She, she's loving and caring and kind. And <laughs> I'm all those things, but I work. It wasn't that, that, that simple. And she really made me, made me change the perception and look at it from the other side. Right? How are you making someone feel and et cetera. Um, and that really drove me to just want to be a better person. Like I, I, I love what I do and I just want to entice people to be better and grow um, instead of just being that harsh um, person that no one's going to really remember. Middle Eastern cuisine is known for such vibrant colors and spices and textures. Uh, how important are producers for what you do? Um, well, like, yes, like you said, there's beautiful textures and colors. And, and for us, obviously, in the Middle East, nuts is a massive, a massive piece of it. So for me, like my, my, some of my imported things that come directly from the Middle East, we have like beautiful raining pistachios. Um, I've been able to match that with really, really beautiful local Victorian produce. Uh, we have some, some like chickpeas from Mount Zero, um, you know, that we get down from the Grampians and our olives are down from down there as well. Um, has been, is really nice. And then with produce, it can be even a little bit tricky at Maha due to the, the bare volume that we go through. But I do love little boutique farms, um, and I think they're exceptional. And I do use those for certain dishes, but when you start doing 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 covers, it can be a little bit harder to just choose one single farm or sometimes always have the same produce from the same place. Because, um, yeah, Maha is an absolute monster. It's um, we can do 12, 1300 covers on a normal week and above that on, on Christmas times. So to sometimes receive always the same product can be a little bit tricky. And that's where you learn to use the different farms and different suppliers. I have over five suppliers just from, from my veg, over four or five for my, for my meats. And it all varies obviously depending on cost, season, and what we're looking to achieve on that menu. The group is uh, known for catering huge events like the Formula One, Australian Open, the Melbourne Spring Racing Carnival. Do you have any stories of catering for those events? Yeah, um, it's been great. Like during my whole career, to, I've, I've not been just in restaurants, like you say, I've been in hotels. And then well, along Shane, we've done, we obviously, he's ambassador for some great brands like Mercedes Benz, Host Plus. And then we obviously do the Australian Grand Prix and the, the, um, the Australian Open every single year we've done. So one of my first years, we were doing the entire paddy club, which was probably one of the most daunting events I've ever done in my life. I had about 47 chefs under me, and it was three days. We were producing the food from about a week before with Peter Rollins, um, and just the, the mammoth of controlling the whole paddy club. And it was different menus every single day. The amount of food, the amount of stress, that was probably one of the crazy events I ever did. But um, it was really satisfying to finish that. It was three days. You'd start at four in the morning, and then I'd finish the Grand Prix around five and then head to the restaurants and do a busy service. Um, it's what you live for, actually. Like It sounds really hard, but it was it's a really exciting times. Like To be able to know that you've accomplished that and handled that many chefs and that you have thousands of people that are happy um, is, is re really satisfying. 
What sort of food did you do from those events? Do you have an example you can give to the sort of experience that guests had at those huge events? Yeah, of course. So obviously, most of the times it'll be inspired, Middle Eastern inspired, um, which we can do. Obviously, Maha Lamb Shoulder is probably one of the most famous dishes in Melbourne. Um, we I use over 20, 30 tons a year on an average year of, of lamb at Maha. Um, so lamb shoulder, like green olive tabbouleh, is an initial staple for many, many years. And we reiterate that in different ways and different forms. So that's always a really crowd favorite. And then we have a little dish that probably you've heard of the little Turkish dumplings called Manti. Um, they're a really big favorite along. They're these little handmade dumplings that are really tiny. And then we do them with a beautiful spice burnt butter with sumac and mint. Um, those are always a big favorite along. Even if it's little small events, we can do them in small bowls. Or if it's for catering for 800 or 1,000 people, it's always a favorite as well. You mentioned that a lot of your life has been about travel. Have your travels influenced and shaped you as a chef? Yeah, enormously. Um, I think that my travels, well, my heritage, initially, I have never wanted to do any food that had to do with where I was from. And it's hard for me as well, because I didn't grow up in Colombia. So for me, when people ask me, like, what food you do, my foods, if it's just at home, I'll always be, after all this time, I, I, I do love Middle Eastern food and spices, no matter what. I think the use of tomb and the spices that will forever stick with me now, no matter what I do ever. But um, I really, going to France when I was really young really opened my eyes to seeing what just produce, really good produce and wine was. And I, I used to not drink wine when I was like 18, 19. But then when I, after a few, few years, that I, those memories of the south of France and like I went to little restaurants where it was just like really beautiful produce of the season, just cooked nicely and a great bottle of rosé that you go to the wineries and they just top up your like glass water bottles. You don't even get a brand on it. Um, really, really then further on in my life reminded me what I, what I do enjoy and not so much of just luxury items or good food doesn't have to be caviar and foie gras and truffles, which I think as a young chef, that's all you want to do. <laughs> so that really shaped me to be able to use humble ingredients and make them really, really special. There's been major changes to the operations of the group during this time. What's some of the changes that uh, you've implemented that you'll be keeping moving forward? And will the restaurants be different? Um, I think the restaurants, I think the whole industry will change a little bit. I think my menus have changed away in a little bit and obviously how complex they are. I think one part of that will always be staffing. Um, but the biggest implement that we will always keep is, is Providor. Like I think it's a, that platform has brought so much awareness and realization of what we can do as a restaurant and not just expect bums on seats. So we'll definitely, that's something that we, we always kept doing since day one. We've never stopped it under any of the, even when we lift any of the lockdowns. So I think that's a big part of our business that is, is now a part of, and that won't change. Um, and then from the restaurants, I think the biggest thing that I've not, we've, I really want to focus is I've seen the value of the effort and training of our staff. The, the, the people that you put effort into, are, are they're actually the foundation of all your businesses. So without them, you can't really achieve anything. So our training and culture is probably the biggest focus that we have at the Delia Group in the next 12 months. Melbourne's opening up again after an incredible amount of lockdowns and a really long one just recently. What's the general feeling now that vaccination rates are high? How, how is the feeling in the group and, and generally across the industry? The feeling has been great. We opened Maha East and Maha Bar last week, 
And it was beautiful to see the dining rooms full again. People are really, you can see the hunger. People want to be out and socialize. Obviously, the food's the huge factor. But the biggest thing for us is we always look at our restaurants as creating, obviously, memorable, memorable experiences that go beyond the people's expectations. And I think that's where the whole package really is more important than ever, where you can have great food, but if you don't have really good hospitality, making people feel welcome and comfortable and safe um, has a big impact now. I really, I really believe that. I think people are looking for a great experience, great value for what they're paying, and just, just to really feel comfortable and knowing that there is no no in our restaurants. When you come in, we will do anything that is possible, um, obviously within reasons, but we just want to make sure that people are truly happy and having a great time. And that every time they remember a good memory, it comes from one of our venues. Your career has led you to uh, run the operations for one of Australia's biggest uh, restaurant groups. What is it that you love about what you do? I love at the moment, every day for me is, obviously there's always challenges, but every day is different. Um, I love I love working with Shane. I think we have the, the the relationship I have with him is really the biggest factor for me. That it's we see eye to eye. I, I see we see the future, what it is now. And every day I come to work, and I can either be doing the past at Maha for two hundred covers with my with fifteen chefs, or I can go to one of the small venues on a Tuesday and be doing thirty rest, thirty covers with three chefs, or have a day of office where I needed to look at HR and procedures and make sure everything's compliant. Um, that variety for me is, is what drives me every day. Every day is different and every day is a, a new day to keep improving what we're doing um, and improving the hospitality scene in Melbourne. Well, Daniel, um, good luck with everything. Everything's opening up and hopefully will stay open up. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Uh, thank you very much, Anthony. It was great to be on board. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.